Hello, and welcome once again to another edition of Chapters, SIU Student Histories. My name is Ben, and this is Josh. Hi, how's it going? <laughs> <laughs> and today we have another special treat for you, an actual long narrative provided by one of our history students, Davis. Josh, something very important in the world is going on right now. Uh, yes. And it's had an impact on our podcast, would you say? It sure has. Um, as I think was introduced in the episode zero, we have a uh, digital podcasting lab at SAUC. The only problem is COVID-19 hit, and we are actually unable to be on campus for safety reasons and all that. So there's going to be, from this point on, a noticeable drop in quality in some of these podcasts. Um, I apologize for that. It's still the great content that we were delivering with the uh, actual studio, but a uh, little bit less audio quality. Nothing wrong with using Zoom. We're doing the best with what we can, but being socially distanced and uh, safe from each other is much more important than uh, using the fabulous equipment donated to us by the SIU Foundation. And still, we want to deliver this exciting quality content that we've been trying to produce for a while now. Uh, and we're excited to do so in a new format. Indeed, indeed. Today, being joined by Davis. Uh, Davis's narrative is going to be about the Irish uh, Rebellion in 1916. Is that right, Ben? The 1916. That is correct. Okay. That is correct. It's a it's a six day. It was a six day rebellion during World War One, uh, where Ireland suddenly swung and and fought for its independence. As Davis will talk about, not every Ire Irelander. <laughs> Irishman? Not every, not every Irishman and woman was uh, on board with this initial revolution, but that ultimately this this rebellion helped cement that Irish uh, nationality and Irish sentiment for uh, a longing for freedom. Yeah. Um, That's right. And before we get into the narrative, we actually have a short Q and A session. So put down your bottles of Jameson, or maybe even pick them up, and we'll get right into that. All right. All right. With that, let's jump to our virtual studio. My name is Ben. I am here today with my co-host, Josh. Hello. And Josh and I are joined today by Davis Ty. Davis, welcome. Hi. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what you're going to be presenting to us today? Well, my podcast was on my research paper that looked into the history of Ireland and more specifically, came to the conclusion at the Easter Rebellion. Hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting topic you chose. Now, why exactly did you decide to write on Ireland and uh, the rebellion there? Well, so I picked the rebellion because as short as it was, six days, it had a profound effect on Ireland and its history. And I'm sure any Irish would agree. It led to a civil war, which was one of the bloodiest that nation had ever seen. It had a great effect on the political landscape, and the people that came out of it changed Ireland forever. Uh, Eamon de Valera, the nation's president at one point in time, he was a rebel leader, as well as Michael Collins. He was another rebel leader at the time. And um, it's safe to say without them, Ireland really wouldn't be the same as it is today. Mm-hmm. Now, do you have a connection to Ireland? Are you? Do you have like? Is that any uh, heritage you have there, or is this just something that, like, man, you were interested? In? I've always found interest in the um, in the British Isles and 
just Europe in general. But uh, on my father's side, they're all Irish. And um, uh, my mother's side is Anglo-Scottish. So there, there is that heritage factor. Uh, give us a little background on the uh, research you did for this project. Was there certain stuff you were looking for? Were there archives in, in England or Ireland that you were looking at? Or were there books that you were looking at that you found specifically interesting? So two great sources I found were um, in the Irish Times. There's, um, I, I, if I'm butchering these names, a thousand apologies, but Shane Hagarty and Fintan O'Toole. They had a entire day-by-day system, which is really what I wanted to structure the podcast around, was a, taking it a day-by-day. They had a day-by-day structure as to the Easter Rising and what happened. And they did an oral history as well as uh, looked into journals. They did a lot of, a lot of an incredible work revolving around this huge ordeal. And in terms of the Irish history, I really looked into um, some books my professor was willing to give me in the time. Uh, Mike Cronin, A History of Ireland. Um, that, was also, that was also a terrific book. I want to give credit to that one. As well as a couple of the Easter Rising books. Charles Townshed, uh, the Easter 1916 the uh, Irish Rebellion, those those books uh, really gave deep insight into the rebellion, as well as like different sides to it, the British side and the Irish side. So now, Davis, you are going to break format that from most of our uh, other podcasts. You've got a whole narrative story prepared for us day by day of the rebellion. But before we get into that, uh, I think some of our audience, especially uh, the host of this show, might appreciate a little bit of background information. Uh, so let's start off with this question. How widespread was the support for the, the Easter rebellion? It started off and a lot of people were very resentful of it. They didn't like this rebellion taking off in the city of Dublin, the very center of the city. The Irish rebels took over many of the buildings as well as many of the shops for their own garrisons. There's mass looting, so I, I touch on that in the podcast, and just an incredible resentment for why they would be doing this when this is all starting in the middle of World War One. So there's plenty of there's plenty of resentment for combat as it is, or even armed conflict. Yeah, so that actually leads into a question I was interested in asking. Um, listening to your segment that you did, um, you mentioned like the uh, um, the Home Rule Act and these sorts of things. Could you give us a little bit more information about that? And also to clarify, the year of the Easter Rebellion was 1916, correct? Yes. Um, okay. So the desire for Home Rule began immediately following the Act of Union. The Home Rule Acts hitting Parliament didn't come into effect until really the beginning of the 20th century with the Irish politicians advocating for Home Rule. And it passed, meeting a actually substantial amount of resistance from the British Parliament. But it was put on hold at the start of World War I in 1914. So they had to delay the actual enacting of Home Rule. So Ireland wasn't free uh, once it had passed. 
So these rebels, these nationalists, and really they were Republicans that had taken up arms during the rebellion. They wanted the Home Rule Act now. They wanted independence now because they didn't know how long World War I was going to last. And they even went to so far as to ask for German assistance. So for those that don't know, the Act of Union makes Ireland part of the British system, right? Right. So it's complete control over the Irish. There is no more an Irish government. There is the British government in Ireland is subject to those laws. When we talk about, when we talk about home rule, we're talking about a system similar to that of, of Canada or Australia uh, that we think of in World War II, where, yes, you're part of the British Commonwealth, but you have your own parliament and your own laws, and you're not entirely subject to the British laws. Is that a good summary of that? Yes, that's, that's a great summary. Okay. So when we think of the American Revolution on this side of the pond, we often, the calling cry was no taxation without representation. Uh, certainly there are those who have made the argument that the revolution was funded by merchants looking to break from mercantilist traditions. What were the Irish nationalists seeking in independence? Was, what was their calling uh, of the, the Irish people to be free? Was there anything behind the independence movement? Behind the independence movement was just the sheer fact that Britain had ruled over their nation for so long. There wasn't just the taxes, it was the fact that all laws couldn't go past an Irish say-so. All of the laws were going through the parliamentary houses over in Britain, and the Irish had very, very little say, even in local governments, because all of the local magistrates were elected and established by British. So there was no real Irish control even at the local levels. Yeah, so Davis, the, uh, there's a question that I had come to mind while I was listening to your recording, um, and that is the impact that uh, this moment has of the Easter Rising, that it had on then the, the Civil War that followed um, and the conflicts later on throughout the 20th century you have with the IRA um, so how is this acting as like a strike point or is it the strike point? Obviously, there were uh, issues brewing before this, but is this kind of the moment where all those things got solidified for how the rest of the 20th century turned out? In regards to this being the starting point, I don't think it was the starting point to the two being hostile to each other. But the idea that this didn't play a pivotal role is false. After the volunteers had lost the rebellion and were captured and their leaders were executed unlawfully, the Irish people really began to believe in what the rebels were fighting for, an Irish republic. And so this nationalist movement really takes off amongst the people of Ireland. But the Ulster volunteers and the people of Ulster are still very much unionist. So those conflicting ideas uh, start to clash. And in regards to the Troubles, um, I touched briefly on that in my paper. That definitely comes about from the hostilities between the Republicans and the Unionists. It's a beautiful day. Easter morning, April 24th, 1916. 
the Irish Grand National is being held, people are bustling about in the streets. Irish militants from the Citizens Army and the Irish Volunteers are marching in formation down the streets. Everybody thinks it's all just parades, simple drill practice. But there's a certain atmosphere of suspicion. And it's lingering around like a certain calm before a storm. Maybe there is something suspicious going on. Or maybe it's just the general Monday after a holiday mood. Where it is a shipment of German weapons and munitions were seized by British troops and carried just a few days ago. Some sort of attack or insurrection was set to occur, and the munitions were to supply such an event. With this shipment of munitions and the German crew on board the ship arrested and seized, there can't be an attack now. The Irish volunteers who were established as a response to the Ulster Volunteers being created with the signing of the Ulster Covenant, are a militia group, same as the Citizens' Army, formed in Ireland and Northern Ireland. These militias, the Ulster and Irish Volunteers, they've been at each other's throats since the Home Rule Act passed in 1914, but was suspended at the break of World War I. And they've been threatening to go to all-out war with each other, should they not get their way. Around 11.30, all of a sudden, gunfire starts to ring out throughout the city. Glass shattering and yelling coming from Sackville Street and the adjacent avenues. Hysteria begins to fill the streets. The volunteers begin storming several buildings and engaging police officers and British troops guarding buildings throughout Dublin. The post office, Boland's Mill, Jacob's Factory, the Jameson Distillery, and several other buildings, including City Hall. Volunteers are firing at Dublin Castle, the British strong point in Dublin City, and Trinity College. You see students of the college fighting back against the volunteers, protecting their fellow students and their university from being used as a fortified position or even a base of operations. At noon, you begin to hear the commotion halt for the briefest of moments. As you look towards the top of the general post office steps, Patrick Pierce, a writer, teacher, Irish Republican, and member of the Sinn Féin party, comes out of the post office and before the terrified crowd with a declaration of independence signed by himself, James Connolly, Thomas Clark, Sean McDermott, Thomas McDonough, Eamon Kent, and Joseph Plunkett for the first Irish Republic reading aloud the proclamation he had written on behalf of the new provisional government for the new Irish Republic to be instated. The proclamation is read, but the people around are not celebrating. But, bewildering enough, they continue to go about their daily errands, visibly unhappy with the unrest that has come with this sudden attack and insurrection. 
many people used this time to their advantage and began looting stores, which only fueled the unrest. The Irish volunteers began to mount their defenses, waiting the impending British response. But as the chaotic day comes to an end, the British troops that had been caught off guard, as many took leave and attended the Grand National, managed to rally and elicit a response of some sort with engagements on the eastern end of South Dublin Union. It turns out that the volunteers came with reduced numbers at the very start of this rebellion. And in the night, government troops slipped in and occupied Shelbourne Hotel, a strategic positioning against the volunteers. Second day of the uprising. This is the day where the bloodshed really begins. General William Lowe assumes control of the British forces in Dublin. More British troops arrive via train from Belfast, and the response to this rebellion comes quickly. As I said, despite the unexpectedness of the uprising, British forces initially put their efforts into securing the approaches to Dublin Castle and isolating the rebel headquarters which at the time they believed was Liberty Hall. The fighting begins early, around 5 a.m., when the gunfighting starts at the northern edge of the city center. After a firefight at the Shelbourne Hotel, the rebels at St. Stephen's Green retreat towards the Royal College of Surgeons. Citizens are protesting the volunteers' occupation of the city and are demanding them to give up and leave. Martin Walton, a very young volunteer at the time, just 15, recalls the events as he reached the entrance of one of the rebel-occupied buildings, saying, quote, And then I remember the first blood I ever saw shed. There was a very big, tall woman with something very heavy in her hand, and she came across and lifted up her hand to make a bang at me. One of the volunteers upstairs saw this and fired. And I just remember seeing her face and head disappear as she went down like a sack. That was my baptism of fire. And I remember my knees nearly going out from under me. I would have sold my mother and father and the Pope just to get out of that bloody place. By midday, the British troops retake the city hall and the offices next door. Zeppelin raids beginning over Kent and Essex, and German ships beginning a bombardment over Lowestoft and Great Yarmouth. But the British assume wrongly that these attacks are being made in support of the Irish rebels. That afternoon, Pierce walked out into Sackville Street with an escort and stood in front of Nelson's Pillar to speak before a large crowd. He reads out a manifesto to the citizens of Dublin, calling on them to support the uprising. All of this while looting continues and the stores and rebel forces are stunned by how their fellow Irishmen are not rallying to the cause, but rather using this time to loot their neighbors and the stores of their community. That evening, Lord Wimborne, the Lord Lieutenant, 
declares martial law, blocking the exits of the streets with blockades, creating a perimeter for containment of the rebel forces. Day three of the rebellion, the British have sent reinforcements, docking at Kingstown Harbor. The soldiers are confused. The fighting is in France. Why are we here in Ireland? There are people coming from the city to greet the soldiers, bringing them food, relieved that they're there. The troops are briefed on the situation, and then, at 8 a.m., the British begin shelling the city. Primary target was the now empty Liberty Hall, completely leveling the building by the end of the day. Hundreds of British troops envelop the Mendicity Institute, occupied by 26 volunteers under Sean Houston's command. British troops advance but face fierce resistance. Exhausted and almost out of ammunition, Houston's men become the first rebel position to surrender. Houston had been ordered to hold his position for a few hours to delay the British, but had held that position for three days. An hour after the shelling began, Jacob's factory is hit with a heavy amount of machine gun fire. It has been ascertained that many civilian lives were lost in the waves of automatic fire. Killed while they were searching for food, which had become scarce at that point in that particular part of the city. Killed looking for loved ones, and others killed simply just sitting in their homes. Sackville Street is now a war zone, with fires taking shops and businesses with no sign of reprieve for the city. The engagements are lasting hours. Many of the firefights go without a single moment of pause in the gunfire. General Sir John Grenfell Maxwell is dispatched from London to deal with the Rising, as the government's troops were expected to have dealt with the situation by now. As night approaches, the hail of gunfire begins to die down, and the snipers wait for their moment to take out enemy sentries. British take several strong points previously held by the rebels, including Mount Street Bridge. The rebels are beginning to retreat, but not without killing many British soldiers in the process. Day 4 The British forces established defensive fighting positions overnight, and Trinity College is now operating as a British barracks. The rebel position at South Dublin Union inflicted heavy losses on British troops. British troops have also taken heavy casualties in unsuccessful assaults on the rebel position on Marrowbone Lane. The British eventually took the Mount Street rebel position. For the last three days of fighting, the British made repeated attempts to take North King Street areas. As the troops move in, the rebels continue to fire from windows, rooftops, and barricades. The British, in an attempt to avoid direct fire, begin using makeshift armored trucks and by tunneling through the walls inside terraced houses to get near the rebel positions. 
the GPO is hit repeatedly by British artillery in attempts to bring down the headquarters. James Connolly is gravely injured and brought back to the GPO from Middle Abbey Street and is treated by a British doctor that was taken prisoner by the rebels. British troops take Capel Street, effectively cutting connection between GPO and the Four Courts garrison. South Dublin Union remains in rebel hands, while volunteers from north and south of the GPO are forced to retreat. The leaders of the rebellion are all now joined at the GPO. Machine guns continue throughout the night, and the center of the city is on fire. The fifth day of the rebellion dawns, and the volunteers have decided that after the heavy artillery fire on the headquarters, it is time to abandon the GPO. The building is caving in, but that doesn't stop the volunteers from shooting from the debris. The immediate planning to move the headquarters is underway. The rebels have held onto Boland's Mill, the Royal College of Surgeons, Jacob's Factory, the South Dublin Union, and the Four Courts. Refugees, those who have lost their shelter in all of this chaos, are stopped and detained while trying to escape the city. Many are killed in the crossfire between rebel and British forces. The rebel forces at the Metropole Hotel are forced to retreat to the GPO, but come to find the area is equally in trouble. The plans to move the headquarters to Henry Street is underway, in Cogan's shop at the junction of Henry Place and Moore Street, and a barricade is built along the laneway outside. 16 Moore Street is the new headquarters for the revolution. But relaying the message to the other garrisons proves difficult, with British forces working to sever the routes between the leadership and the garrisons. It is at this point, Moore Street is a battlefield. The same can be said for the city as a whole, and more and more British troops are coming out of the harbor to reinforce British positions. A wave of silence washes over the city on the morning of the sixth day, and it's not a calm one whatsoever. Rebels on the south side don't know the conditions of the rebels on the north side. The exhaustion and frustration begins bearing down on both British and rebel forces. The fighting on North King Street is coming to an end. Appearing to have abandoned any hopes of breaking through the barricade to the four courts, the rebel forces at 16 Moore Street wave a white flag outside, signaling their surrender to the British forces 
Negotiations of the surrender follow on Moore Street, while fighting continues across the city, unaware of the rebel HQ standing down. Pierce and Connolly, after only being offered an unconditional surrender, sign a general order instructing the volunteer forces to surrender. The order reads as followed. In order to prevent the further slaughter of Dublin citizens, and in the hopes of saving the lives of our followers, now surrounded and hopelessly outnumbered, the members of the provisional government present at the headquarters have agreed to an unconditional surrender, and the commanders of the various districts in the city and county will order their commands to lay down arms. The rebels that surrender are taken behind the Rotunda Hospital, where they will stay until the end of the fighting and the official end of the rebellion. Some rebel forces are still holding out. For example, at the Four Courts, the rebel forces are stunned and initially refuse to surrender, but eventually agree. Same can be said for the other garrisons at Boland's Mill and Jacob's Factory, whose forces don't stand down and surrender until the following day. The leaders of the rebellion, the signatures of the proclamation, are gathered and arrested. General Maxwell decides that the court's martial will be held in secret and without a defense, which Crown Law officers later ruled to have been illegal. The leaders were found guilty and executed in this order. On May 3rd, Patrick Pierce, Thomas McDonough, and Thomas Clark. May 4th, Joseph Plunkett, William Pierce, Edward Daly, and William O'Haran. May 5th, John McBride. May 8th, Eamon Kent, Michael Mallon, Sean Houston, and Con Colbert. May 12th, James Connolly, and Sean McDermott. With the unlawful and hasty execution of the leaders, many Irish citizens begin to believe in what the leaders of the rebellion died for, an Irish republic. Wow, Josh, some pretty powerful stuff. Indeed. Um, man, we don't really have much to say after that. Uh, we're just going to let, really, the narrative speak for itself. Um, and honestly, with that, it's the end of our show, and we're just going to move on to our thanks. And in that interest, real quickly, we would like to thank the SIU Foundation for making Chapters Podcast possible, uh, Professor Pickney Benedict of the Creative Writing Program and English Department, Professors Joe Schrammick and Jonathan Bean of the History Department, Professor Carla Berry of the Center for Teaching Excellence for all their help in getting this equipment together, and thank you to you, our listeners, for tuning in. 
Uh, please join us next week when we sit down with Josh. Uh, Josh will actually be presenting next week on WCIL and the history of one of Southern Illinois' most important radio stations. Until then, thank you.